So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the kings except the gods and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Then Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to the house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dreams of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, no enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air wherever they live he has made you ruler over them all you are that head of gold after you another kingdom will rise inferior to yours next a third kingdom one of bronze will rule over the whole earth finally there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron for iron breaks and smashes everything and as iron breaks things to pieces so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and will bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. 
This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Good morning. I'm just hoping I won't take longer than Sam took to read this passage. (laughs) I know it was long. (laughs) Uh, But I will not be reading it again in the course of my sermon. You know the story. Sam read it quite clearly. Uh, But uh, let's look at what the Lord has to speak to us this morning, even as we continue in our study of the book of Daniel. Uh, the story is told of, uh, of a pastor who had to deal with a very tough situation in his church, as is the case in most churches, that you don't look for men of character sometimes to be uh, filling positions in church. You look for men of power and uh, money and, uh, and talent sometimes. So uh, this happened in one such church where the pastor was finding it difficult to deal with the choir director because he was an alcoholic. And he'd, he'd be completely drunk from Monday to Saturday, and only on Sunday morning he'd be sober. He'd come and lead worship, and the congregation in worship. So uh, this young pastor found it very difficult to deal with him, and uh, it was an open secret. Everybody else knew about it as well, but they found it difficult to deal with him and confront him on that. And so the pastor decided to preach a sermon about or on the dangers of alcoholism. So he stood on the pulpit one morning and he made a very good case against alcoholism and he made three applications for it. He said, number one, if somebody were to give me all the beer in the world, I would go and dump it in the river. Application number two, if, if somebody were to give me all the wine in the world, I would still go and dump it in the river. Application number three, if somebody were to give me all the alcohol in the world, I would still go and dump it in the river. And the sermon was done. He was very vehement throughout the sermon. And, uh, and after that, it was the choir director's turn to lead the congregation in a song after sermon. And so the choir director got up and said much more than what he wanted to say through the song that he selected. He said, let's all stand up and sing hymn number 109 joyfully that says, Shall we all gather at the river? (laughs) By the way, it's a very good song. I like it. (laughs) The story story is also told, talking about this character, the story is also told of two brothers who were in a church. They wouldn't be part of the church regularly, but they often showed up in church, and they wanted to be called members of the church. And uh, they had a new pastor come in, and uh, so the pastor was quite open, quite truthful from the, from the pulpit. He would preach against sin quite openly. And the congregation started growing because of that. And all of a sudden, they, want, they outgrew the building they were sitting in, and they wanted to build a new building. So there were donations that were coming in, and uh, all of a sudden, one of the brothers died. And so the other surviving brother came to him, and he said, I will finish your uh, building project. I'll give you a fat lot of money. But the only thing that you need to do for me is that somewhere during the eulogy of my brother, when you're preaching, refer to him as a saint. He assumed there was going to be a eulogy for this man, so he said, somewhere during the eulogy, refer to him as a saint. And so the pastor was a good businessman, so he he thought it's a good deal. He took the money, took the check, deposited that in the bank, got the construction going, and the day of funeral came, and the man was in the coffin, 
And the pastor stood on the pulpit and he said, this man that you see here lying in the coffin is a rascal. Is, he has done every stinking, debauched thing possible. But compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> Richard Foster, in one of his books, made this statement. The desperate need of today is not for gifted people. The desperate need of today is not for intelligent people. But the desperate need of today is for deep people. People who are deep. People who have this deep-seated conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ. People of character. That's the desperate need for today, is what Richard Foster said in one of his books. And when you see ministries stumbling about us, and men of character, men of lesser character even, standing on pulpits or heading ministries, it is no surprise that you see a lot of ministries falling and tumbling. And when we see such things, we often have some questions squirming in our minds. What does it take to be a man or a woman whom God is pleased with? What does it take to be a man or a woman whom God is pleased with? Or what qualities do I need to have to be used by God for some great and extraordinary purposes? What qualities do you need to have to be used by God for some great and extraordinary purposes? We can only be thankful that the book of Daniel answers all these questions, and especially Daniel chapter 2 very pertinently answers all these questions. And Daniel is a man who sought to be faithful to his God. He sought to be faithful to the calling that God had given him. But when he was put between a rock and a hard place, as we see, as we will see now in chapter 2, he stepped forward, taking the leadership, taking the initiative, trusting in God. And it is often in crisis that character is clearly seen and revealed, and men of character emerge when they are put in moments of crisis. And so it was with Daniel. So today's passage will reveal to us two qualities that you, need to, that you need to have to be used by God for greater purposes. Two qualities, two very simple things that the Bible talks about. I know when, we, when Sam read the passage to us, we thought it's a very tough passage. It is. Yes, it is talking about future and all that's going to unravel in terms of world history. But the main intent of the text, I think, is about the character of the man who stands tall in crisis. So this passage will reveal to us two things that you need to have to be used by God for greater purposes. Daniel chapter 2. And if you could uh, put the outline up, please. Uh, please follow along, and uh, we will look at it verse by verse again. Just for your breather, I'm not going to read all the verses, maybe scattered verses here and there just to make the point, and then we'll look at what the text has to say to us. So in verses 1 through 19a, you'll see that you must know that God is on the throne even in terms of crisis. You must know that God is on the throne even in times of crisis. You must recognize that only God has a solution, that only God has a solution even when the best of the world fail and they don't have answers to it. And we see that very clearly happening in the life of Daniel. What did Daniel do? Daniel was confident that the Lord alone could reveal the mystery and depended on him in prayer. How did all that happen? It unraveled in three vignettes and let, let us look at it one by one. The first one, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him. Verses 1 Two and three. Look at the verses, please. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Let me paint for you what was happening in the historical context here. Cataclysmic events were taking place. Babylon had just defeated Egypt. Babylon had recently defeated Assyria as well, which had taken the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. And Israel was to find no point of return at all because Israel would not have return. And the, uh, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, was in the process of dissolution 
part of it had been taken into captivity into Babylon and very soon Jerusalem was going to be destroyed as well. So, so much was happening around in history and all of a sudden God gives this king, Nebuchadnezzar the Great, a dream. And since God gave the dream, this dream troubled this man. He was greatly troubled by it. His sleep left him is what the Bible says. Now you're talking about Nebuchadnezzar the Great. He is called Lord of Lords, small l. He is also called the king of all the earth, king of the then known world. He was very strident, very powerful. He had unrivaled military, virtually infinite economic resources. He faced no human threat. Nothing was a threat to his throne. And for a man as powerful as this, for a man as imposing as Nebuchadnezzar the Great, there was a small dream that God gave that really troubled him. And I think God gave him a series of dreams because the word there used is the word dreams, plural. But I think one particular dream was there that was given to him that really troubled this man. And the word troubled used here in Hebrew means a, a, a grief in the spirit, a troubling distress within the spirit. So this man was absolutely troubled about what he was seeing in his dream. And so his sleep left him. He was distraught. He couldn't sleep in the night. And he called all of the wise men. He lined them up. And then he said, you've got to help me because this, there is this dream that I had that has troubled me. So Nebuchadnezzar was in a bad mood when he called his wise men and he had a dream that really troubled him. So that's the first vignette that uh, Daniel paints for us in this chapter. The second one, the wise men could not reveal the dream and were under the threat of execution. Verses 4 through 13, I will not read them for you, but let me just read two verses for you. Verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and so no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Now, a great sense of urgency arose when the king's senior wise men were all summoned before him. After briefing them about the situation, he demanded that they tell his dream and they tell the interpretation of his dream as well. Now, the king was a smart guy. He would have probably heard wrong interpretations before. Because if you tell the magician a dream and he comes and gives you an interpretation, it could be a manufactured interpretation. But a real magician or a real man who can read dreams is somebody who will tell you what the dream is and tell you what the interpretation is as well. And so they were assembled wise men representing the heathen methods, various heathen methods of obtaining divine guidance. And they all were brought together and they were unanimous about one thing. King, your request is unreasonable because what you're asking is an impossible thing. Your request is very unreasonable, and what you're asking for is a very impossible thing. They protested and said, King, no king, however great, has ever asked any magician to do a thing like that because such a thing does not happen. It only happens with gods revealing it, small g, and those gods don't live among men. It was beyond their ability and beyond the ability of their gods as well. And so the king looked at all of that. He took stock of the situation and then he was very furious and frustrated with the situation because they were not able to tell him what the dream is and uh, much less interpret it as well. So he demanded that all the wise men of Babylon be put to death and they should all be executed. Now their response, the response of the wise men, not only showed the impotence of the wise men and the impotence of their gods, but Daniel is introducing for us the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God that Daniel worships, as somebody who goes in stark contrast with the heathen gods, as somebody who can reveal mysteries, as somebody who can do much better than all these wise men and their gods. That's the second thing that Daniel paints for us. Then there's a third thing. Daniel took a wise initiative and looked to the Lord for the solution. Verses 14 through 19a. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, 
the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made, uh, made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now a strange and a providential twist of fate takes place, putting Daniel and his three friends right in the middle of the crisis. Now they had not been summoned earlier to the king's palace, but they certainly were part of this elite band called wise men, and they also were going to be executed. And Daniel was very troubled by it, but come to think of it, God providentially orchestrated the events of Babylon so that the gods of the Babylon, along with those who called on them, would be shown to be worthless, would be shown to be impotent. At the same time, God created a situation for these four young men, putting them right in the middle of crisis to show them that God alone could be their deliverer. And also, God the God of Israel in this situation is going to do something which no God, no heathen God could ever do. And that is to foretell history, unravel history for us and tell us what really is going to happen. All things are possible for God, the God of the Bible. Nothing is impossible for him. Daniel, on the other hand, was a man of great wisdom. And that wisdom came from God alone. And it was very evident, especially in terms of crisis. Remember in chapter 1, he went and talked with, uh, with the guard and he said, let me just eat vegetables. And he looked much more healthier than the other people. So he was a man of wisdom and he knew how to use it, especially in crisis moments. He was a man of character who could stand up and who could be trusted. George Washington once made the statement. He said, few men have the virtue to stand the highest bidder. And he was right. Few men have the virtue to stand the highest bidder. And he was right. Most people have a price. And when the right price comes our way, we are often willing to give up our most treasured convictions that we've held. But Daniel was not a man who would compromise. Daniel was an uncompromising man, and he was a very rare commodity. And that's exactly the kind of person that God is looking for to stand in the gap. And that's exactly the kind of person that God is looking for to accomplish some of his greatest acts in history. He wants choice servants for choice ministries. And Daniel was such a person. He wouldn't compromise. And that's why God used him to reveal to the rest of the world the grand plan of redemption. And not just the history of Israel, but the history of the world as well. And so, what does Daniel do? He approached Arioch with, uh, with discretion and discernment, is what the Bible says. He used wisdom. He went and asked him the reason behind the haste and the urgency of the king's edict. And Arioch showed kindness to Daniel and explained to him the situation. And Daniel understood very clearly that if something is not done right now by me, if I don't take the initiative, then I'm going to be executed. My friends are going to be executed. Along with me, the rest of the wise men of Babylon are going to be executed as well. So Daniel used his wisdom. And then he goes and says, can I buy some time from the king? I want some time from the king. And I will not just give you the dream, but also interpret the dream for the king. Imagine the kind of confidence that Daniel had in God. Daniel was absolutely certain that this dream was from the Lord himself. And if he would go to the Lord and ask the Lord for the dream, the Lord would not just reveal the dream to him, but the Lord would reveal the interpretation of the dream to him as well. And that's why he confidently goes before a, a raging king, a furious king, and he says, can I buy some time from you? And the delay was granted to him. Now remember earlier when the magicians of Babylon came and asked for time, it wasn't granted to them. But to Daniel, the time was granted. Why is it? Why was the time granted to 
Daniel. If you remember in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, when he was interviewing them, he saw that they were found 10 times better than all the other wise men. But not just that, Daniel had courage. It is very hard to say no to a man who is standing with confidence in God, with courage before you, and saying, I can do this for you. It's very hard to resist such a man. And I think the king couldn't resist it. And he said, I will grant you the request. You go and tell me what the dream is and what the interpretation is. So Daniel hastened to his house where he found his three friends and he told them what happened and he said, it is God who's revealed the dream and so if we pray to God, if we look to God and depend on him, if we pray to him, then he will reveal it to us and we can go and tell the king what the revealer of mysteries has to say to us. And so they go and pray and as the dreams were revealed to the king in the night, so the mystery was revealed to Daniel as well in the night. So Daniel took a wise initiative and looked to the Lord for solution. Let me have a question for you. And I want to ask you this question as honestly and as personally as I can as I ask myself this question. Do you depend on the Lord in prayer? If I were to ask any Christian, do you think prayer is important? I don't think there'd be any Christian who would say, no, it's not important. But I'm not sure how many Christians realize that prayer is not just important, but prayer is essential to the Christian life. Prayer is not just important, but it is essential to the Christian life. We need to pray for everything. We need to be prayerfully dependent on the Lord about everything. We need to pray as a church as well. Peter Wagner wrote once, and he said this, the more deeply I dig beneath the surface of church growth principles, the more thoroughly convinced I become that the real battle is a spiritual battle and that our principal weapon is prayer. The real battle is a spiritual battle and our principal weapon is prayer. You know, I want to say this to you as as kindly as I can, but I say this with concern, and don't get me wrong in this. When we have a monthly prayer here, when the points are put up or sent, sent on WhatsApp for the church to gather together and pray, it is sad and heartbreaking to see that a lot of us would stand outside then remain here and pray as a church. In fact, I forget, the last time, was it Pradeep? Uh, Pradeep and I, I think, or was it Jobin and I, one of us, we, we decided that we'd, we'd send a lot of people in. And, and we went outside and started sending people in, but when we came in, it was just about 25 to 30% of the people who were sitting in, and a lot of people were standing outside. Now, that only shows that we don't realize the power of prayer. And we don't realize the power of prayer because we haven't seen the power of prayer in our own individual lives. We need to pray individually as well. We need to spend a lot of time communing with God in prayer on our knees. And I know we're all very busy people. And we have so-called other important things to do. But there is nothing more essential for the Christian life than to spend time on our knees and have protracted times of God in prayer, communing with God. Martin Luther says this, Guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while, I'll pray in an hour. First I must attend to this or to that. Such thoughts get you away from prayer into affairs which, which hold your attention and involve you in nothing And nothing comes out of prayer that day for you. We must resist. We must resist our Facebook. We must resist our WhatsApp and set them aside and sit for protracted times of prayer. And may I ask you this question as honestly as I can. When was the last time you spent time on your knees before God? I'm not talking about the family prayer that we have for 10 minutes every day. I'm glad we do that. I'm talking about 
protracted times of individual prayer when we have communion with God alone. Do your children see you as a man of prayer? Do your children see you as a woman of prayer? Do your children recognize that it is prayer that makes your family tick? And all your decisions are made around prayer? Or do they see you as a busy man? As a man who doesn't have time for God, but for everything else? We must be prayerfully dependent on God. And that's when we can see a difference. And that's when we can see answers. William Law said, Prayer is the nearest approach to God and the highest enjoyment of him that we are capable of in his life. Prayer is the nearest approach to God and the highest enjoyment of him that we are capable of in this life. You know, uh, Ange and I, uh, we enjoy John Piper and his writings very much. And um, just last week, she was reading some article and then she came to me and she said, Ravent, no matter what season of life we are in, John Piper always touches you. And I agreed with that. Uh, not that I agree with all that John Piper writes, but I certainly, uh, he's, he's got good theology, he's got good applications, and it'll really touch your life. It speaks into your life, into every situation. And then she made the statement. I thought she would say, I'm glad he's a great exegete. And then I was looking for the next statement. She said, he speaks to every situation of our life. I'm sure he must be a man of prayer. And I was so thankful about that statement. Because you and I could be great exegetes, great preachers, great orators. But I, but I want to say this before God, that all of us, all of this must be bathed in prayer. All of this must be bathed in prayer. Whether you're teaching a Sunday school, whether you're just a dad at home, whether you're doing anything, we must be prayerfully dependent on God. And that's what Daniel did. And that's how he received the answers. I think I've said enough and let me move on. So in verses 1 through 19a, we saw that you must know that God is on the throne even in times of crisis. Then there's a second quality that you and I need to have to be a man who could be used for great purposes. And that is in verses 19b to 49. Now, please give me your undivided attention. We're going to interpret prophecy. So give me your undivided attention, please. So they say, these verses say that you must understand God for who he is and give him all the credit. You must understand God for who he is and give him all the credit. You must give God the glory for everything that he does through us. You must give God the glory for everything that he does through us. And we see that in Daniel's response. Daniel was clear that he was simply an instrument and pointed to God as the one who should, who should receive all praises. And again, there are three scenes here that are unraveled for us. Let's look at it. The first one. Daniel praised God for his attributes and the revelation that God gave him. Verses 19b to 23. This is a rich theological song, so let me read that for you here. This is Daniel's praise to God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to, uh, to us the king's matter. Daniel blessed God with a hymn of praise. And whenever you see in the Bible, if any man of God were to praise or break out in praise, it is richly theological. You see Mary's Magnificat. You see, I'm sorry, you see, you see uh, the Magnificat. You see, you see the Benedictus. All of these are, are rich theological hymns of praise. And look at the specifics of this theologically rich song. In verses 20, he praised God for his eternality, his omniscience, and omnipotence. In verse 21, Daniel praised God for his sovereignty over the nations. He praised God for his gifts of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. 
in verse 22, he praised God for the revelation that he gave and knowledge again, omniscience. And then in verse 23, he praised God for his faithfulness to his people and he praised God for answering his prayers. A rich theological song and Daniel praised God for his attributes and revelation. Second thing, Daniel unveiled the dream and interpreted it for the king. Daniel unveiled the dream and interpreted it for the king. Verses 24 through 45a. Daniel went to Arioch to make sure that the execution doesn't take place. And he goes and says, I have the dream right now. I have the interpretation. Would you take me to the king? And Arioch rushes him in haste and takes him to the king. And he takes more credit than he deserves. And he says, I have found a man actually from the exiles of Judah. And he will interpret the dream for you, O king. And the king put Daniel on the spot and he asked him the question, can you really interpret the dream? Can you really tell me what the dream is and interpret the dream? Because the reason is, if Daniel would say no, then there is all the more reason to execute him because he did not just fail the king in this, but he asked for an extension and still failed him. And so Daniel, confident in God, says, king, I want you to understand this that I am a mere and ordinary man. I don't have so much wisdom. Well, you could have found me ten times better than the other men, but I'm just an ordinary man. I'm just like everybody else. But I know a God, the God of heaven and earth, who, who, who puts light into dark places, who is a revealer of mysteries. And even as I reveal this to you, uh, O king, I want you to understand that it is not I who is doing it. It is the God of heaven who has revealed this to me. And then... He says, King, here is the dream that you dreamt. When you are thinking about future, when you are thinking about your own future and what would happen to your kingdom after you, the revealer of mysteries comes and he, in, and he gave this dream to you, King, and this is what you saw in the dream. Can you move to the next slide, please? This is what you saw in the dream, King. You saw a huge statue a dazzling statue, an imposing statue, uh, an amazing statue, awe-inspiring. It had a head of gold, chest and, uh, and, and arms of silver. And then it had the midsection and thighs of brass or bronze, and then legs of iron, and then feet of clay and iron mixed. And as you were looking at this, trying to understand this, O king, you also saw a small rock that was hewn out of a mountain. No hand had done it. It's the hand of God who had done it. It went and crashed against the feet of clay and iron, smashing it into smithereens and pieces. And all of it crumbled down as it got pulverized. And a wind came and just whisked it away as if nothing existed in that spot. And that rock that came and crushed all of it, that grew into a huge mountain that no man could touch, and no man could destroy. And Daniel, as he said this, he was, uh, the king was impressed. And Daniel went on to interpret the dream for the king. But before we move to the interpretation, I want you all to notice a couple of things here. As we go down the statue, the value of the metals decreases. Gold is more expensive. Lesser, less expensive or lesser, of lesser value is silver. Then bronze and then iron, and then a mixture of the least valuable mixture of iron and clay. But as we go down the statue, we see the toughness of the materials increasing. Gold is softer than silver, silver which is softer than bronze, which is again softer than iron. But then you come to the feet, you see that there is a combination. Two things that don't stick together. Feet of iron and clay. These two things don't stick together together. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. He says, King, O King, live forever. You are a mighty king. God has given you a huge dominion over all the earth. Even the animals and birds belong to you. And so the head of gold is you, King of Babylon. And as you are there in your totalitarian regime, after you, about 65 years later, will come another king, or two kings rather, and they will come and destroy your kingdom. And they will not be as totalitarian in regime, but they will come and completely take over your kingdom, and they will rule. And Daniel, of course, was talking about Medo-Persian kingdom. 
Darius the Mede came and took over the kingdom. We see that in Daniel chapter 5. So the two arms, I think, represent Media and Persia joining together and coming and destroying Babylon. Babylon ruled for about 65 years, and Medo-Persian kingdom ruled for about 208 years. And after the Medo-Persian kingdom would come another king. That is Alexander the Great, talking about Greek empire. He would come and destroy the Medo-Persian empire, and he would rule from about 331 BC, the kingdom does, rule from about 331 BC to about 31 BC for about 300 years, longer than the two kingdoms before. And then his kingdom would be divided into four among his four generals. That would merge into two, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empire. I think the two legs represent that, and they both merge into one, the Great Roman Empire. So the legs of iron talk about the Great Roman Empire. The western part of Roman Empire existed till 472 AD, and the eastern part of Roman Empire existed till about 1476 AD. So you talk about a vast influence, a long time of reign of these kingdoms. So Babylon, next comes Medo-Persia, next comes Greece, and then came uh, the feet of iron, which is the Roman Empire. But then he talks about feet of clay and feet of iron. And Daniel does not call it the fifth kingdom. He still calls it the fourth kingdom. Now these are very... uh, Unclear verses, scholars are on both sides about it, but I think this is the best possible interpretation about this. I think uh, the feet of clay and iron is talking about the imperial regime of Rome as well as the democratic aspect of Rome. These two don't go well together. They cannot merge together. Rome was not as totalitarian in its regime. It was not entire power with the king, but it gave enough power to the people as well. There was democracy. But if you come and think of it, if you read history, there was never a time when the imperial Rome always existed with democracy of Rome. And so that interpretation would become difficult. And so what the scholars say is this, and follow me please, what they say is, There was a time in the past, until 1476 AD, when Rome existed as an imperial Rome. A king ruled, the Caesar ruled over it. But then it is going to be revived again in the end days, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be led by Antichrist. It could be a confederation of nations. It it would be led by Antichrist, but Rome would be revived again. A kind of a democratic Rome. That would be coming and being destroyed by a stone. And he, he gives a lot of emphasis on this particular stone. He says it is something that cannot be destroyed. It is something that only God made. And he comes and destroys it. And all these things go out of place as though they never existed. It is a kingdom of Christ that he is bringing that will be established forever. His kingdom will always reign. And Daniel says this, O king, is the interpretation This is the dream that you saw. And this is how history is going to play out and history is going to be unraveled. And then Daniel brings his interpretation to a close by two resounding affirmations. The first thing he says, a great God has revealed this. Number two, he says, the dream is certain and the interpretation is true. You can count on it, king. You can take it to the bank. Warren Wearsby Talking about this, he said this. He noted four implications of this vision, and please listen to me carefully. Number one, he said, God is in control of history. Number two, human enterprises decline as time goes by. Number three, it'll be difficult for things to hold together at the end of the age. Number four, Jesus Christ will return and destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom. Now you see, All of this is happening in a particular context. Nebuchadnezzar had just brought the people of Judah into captivity, into exile. It seemed as though the God of Israel had been defeated as well. But now, to unravel history, to see who holds history, and who will have the last laugh, 
they had to go to the God of Israel himself. And Daniel realized, although God didn't seem to be helping at that moment, he's the one who's still on the throne. And ultimately, he's the one who ordains history. He's the one who takes history forward. And ultimately, his kingdom is the one that will reign. If God can unravel history so clearly, and he can hold history together, can he not hold your life? Can he not take care of your future and mine? He certainly can. And so Daniel unveiled the dream and interpreted it for the king. Thirdly and lastly, Daniel conceded the source of the dream and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the superiority of the Lord and his people. Verses 45b through 49. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read that for you, but uh, Daniel had done something impossible or something that was considered impossible. No man could do this. No man could interpret this, but Daniel did something. But he did something else that every man of God ought to do, which is he gave all credit to God himself. He gave all credit to God himself. I don't see a man of the same caliber or humility just like Daniel. In fact, there's a humorous story that is told about uh, an old Apachan in a church who, uh, who was a very humble man. He was a very, very humble man, honestly, genuinely humble man. And so the church presented him with a tie. It said, the most humble man in the church. The tie said, the most humble man in the church. And the fact of the matter is, he wore the tie to the church every week. The most humble man in the church. So C.S. Lewis often says that, uh, the problem with humility is that you could sometimes be proud of your humility. Um, but humility is a rare virtue, and that is what Daniel here exhibits. But as King Nebuchadnezzar found out that it's only the true God who revealed this, he prostrates before Daniel, who is a representative of God there, and he venerates him as though he's a king. And then he goes on to say something important. He says, truly, your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. And as the king promised, he promoted Daniel, and at the request of Daniel, he made the other three friends as well uh, into positions of authority. So Daniel conceded the source of the dream, and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the superiority of the Lord and his people. Do you and I give all glory to God in everything that we achieve? This is a question that you and I need to ask ourselves. Because all of us are involved in something or the other, in our workplaces, in church, in our personal lives. But the question is, do you and I give glory to God in all that we accomplish? Well, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to take uh, credit for the work that we do in the right way. Because uh, if you remember, Paul tells Timothy uh, and asks him to be a worker who need not be ashamed. A worker who need not be ashamed. But I think the Bible warns against a self-centered, egotistical pride that says, look at me and look at what I've accomplished. Look at me and look at what I have accomplished. Why is this wrong? One reason it is wrong is because it makes us think that we are better than other people. And it also separates us from other people, creating a hiatus between us. But more than that, more than that, it cuts us off from God, who is the source of these gifts and talents and even the opportunities that he gives to us to exhibit these gifts and talents. And when we take credit for what we've achieved, we are cutting off God completely. And as I look at this passage and as I look at our world today, I think God is looking for men and women like Daniel who know the source of their strength and are not ashamed to reveal it. George, Fred, uh, George Frederick Hendel, uh, who's, who wrote The Messiah, whenever he would write a hymn, at the end he would write S-D-G, Soli Dio Gloria, to God alone be the glory, to God alone be the glory. I think we need to learn to give glory to God in all that we accomplish. We need to learn to give glory to God in all that we accomplish. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage or chapter basically says, if you want to be used by God for greater purposes, you must understand him 
exhibit a deep confidence in him and give him all the glory. You must understand him, exhibit a deep confidence in him and give him all the glory. You should have a deep knowledge of and commitment to the God of the Bible. So two things we saw. You must know that God is on the throne even in times of crisis and you must understand God for who he is and give him all the credit. My final illustration, I've taken 35 minutes, uh, just two more minutes, and I will be through. Chuck Swindoll, the chancellor of DTS, once said this, the world needs men who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who possess opinions and a will, who are larger than their vocations, who do not hesitate to take chances, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be as honest in small things as in great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not say they do it because everybody else does it, who are true to their friends through good report and evil report in adversity as well as in prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and hard-headedness are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth even when it's unpopular, and who can say no with emphasis when all the rest of the world says yes. I think that's what Daniel was, and that's what God is asking us to be this morning in a world that, is, that has crisis after crisis. Thank you for your patience, and may God bless you all. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, and once again affirming from your word that you are the only true God. You do things that are impossible for other gods. You do things impossible for other men because you are the real God. You are the creator of heavens and the earth. You ordain things in history and you take history in its course. You are an all-powerful God, O Lord. We bow down before you. We want to thank you for your word. That is a reminder to us that history is in your hands. Kings are in your hands. And we want to thank you that ultimately Jesus Christ is going to be the victor. And we will reign with him forever. What a hope we have in Christ Jesus, O oh Lord. Thank you for your word once again. Help us to have the character of Daniel so we can stand in the gap in this world ever increasing with evil. So we can be representatives of this God and of this kingdom that will be coming, that will have no end. Father, I pray, O oh Lord, that each one of us would be challenged by this word and each one of us would know you, would be confident in you, in you would prayerfully depend on you and would exhibit the kind of confidence that a Christian needs to, O Lord. And I pray, O Lord, that uh, you would bless the rest of the things and the activities that are remaining in t uh, for today, O Lord. I pray, O Lord, that everything would be done to the honor and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name.